We've been studying in Luke's gospel. We're in chapter 16. And Jesus has been continuing in his parables. Remember, the, the parables Jesus loved to give his disciples stories because when he gives them stories, they're earthly illustrations to explain heavenly truths. And, and it helps us to understand those who are spiritually minded. And I, one of the themes that I see in my study this morning is, is a lesson on faithfulness. Faithfulness with what God has entrusted to us. Perhaps God has blessed you guys with gifts, talents, position. And I wonder, how do we use these things that God has given us? How do we use the gifts of the Spirit? And not only the gifts of the Spirit, what about the finances that he's given us? What about the family, the authority that he's given us? Our, our positions, what are we doing with these things? Do we use them for his glory? And are we wise with them? Do we try to do things in order to further the kingdom of God or are we trying to create our own kingdom? The monuments of men that all fade away. Do we waste our gifts that God has given us? We see people in the world today that are using their gifts and talents for temporary reward, for things that only last for a moment and, and there's success in, it, in the world and then it fades away into nothing. And I don't want to be that way. So we, we see this morning, I want to read these verses to you of this parable concerning the parable of the unjust steward. Let's begin in Luke chapter 16, beginning with verse 1. It said, He also said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I am ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, take your bill and sit down and quickly write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? So he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in this generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon that when you fail, they re may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is faithful, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? 
No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the, uh, the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So this is a very unique parable. Uh, I think sometimes when you first glance over this, you're like, what is Jesus saying here? And I kind of want to set up the scene. Uh, remember, Jesus is giving the, the, the parables to some of his disciples. There's also the Pharisees there. And last week we talked about the, the parable of the lost son, the prodigal son. And in that, we could see when it came to the jealous brother who was in that story, that the Pharisees, they, they probably were feeling convicted that Jesus was pointing out, this is what happens when legalism is in your life. Now, as the disciples are there alongside with Jesus, and Jesus is like, let me give you this parable. And he starts giving this, this story. I could see the disciples kind of rubbing their hands together like, oh yeah, Jesus is going to get the Pharisees again on this one. Like, let, let's, let's see how he's going to kind of give it to the Pharisees because the Pharisees were so condemning and legalistic, so they're getting rubbing their hands together. And then the interesting thing about this parable is the guy who's unjust at the end of the story is commended. So all of a sudden the disciples are like, wait, what? Wait, what's going on here? How come the unjust guy is being commended? And we're going to dive into that in a little bit. But what I also like kind of seeing all this is when you see the servant and he, he has a master above him and he's working hard and he's using wisdom. It kind of reminds me actually how there is worldly wisdom and it reminds me uh, of, and not, not saying that we are to then follow worldly wisdom, but Jesus is even using this as an example for a reason and we'll get to that. But it reminded me of the latest version of, uh, did you guys see the latest King Arthur movie? It was by Guy Ritchie. It, it's, a, it's a pretty cool story. And one, one of the things that I, I see fascinating is, is the way that this King Arthur character, right? He, he's, Arthur is uh, a little boy when the movie starts off and his father is king and his father's brother ends up doing a mutiny and killing the father and, and King Arthur has to go into hiding and little King Arthur, he ends up being raised, actually, in, in this brothel. And then as he's growing up and maturing, he sort of becomes a king of the streets, so to speak. He, he learns how to fight, and he learns how to do business, and he kind of becomes this, this really successful, influential character out there in the streets. And then you guys have seen the sword in the stone, and finally the sword comes up, he's able to pull it out. And then in this movie, he has to end up fighting this king, but there was this part in it where the wicked king who wanted to kill King Arthur, uh, he takes him aside, he, he captures him, and he's trying to kill him, and he wonders, he says, I wonder what you would have been like, because I see your success in the streets. I wonder what you would have been like had you been raised in the kingdom. And, and to me, that's quite interesting, because people do have gifts and talents that they use for the world. And sometimes I wonder, what could those people have done had they been fully submitted to God? There's this quote. I don't know who first said it, but I heard Chuck Smith say it one time. He says, the world has yet to see what God can do through a man or woman who is fully submitted to him. And it's true. And what was interesting is when, when Chuck Smith said that, it was at a men's conference with 
over maybe 4,000 people in this room, and I was there. And people were, were, when he said that, were on fire. They're like, yeah, what, what can God do through a man who's fully submitted to him? And they were looking at Chuck Smith like, yeah, like that's the guy, dude. And then Chuck Smith s- stood before everyone and said, I, I stand here before you today to tell you I am not this man. And we were like, whoa. Kind of bringing the humility before the Lord and himself. And realizing like, man, but at the same time, it it was an exhortation and encouragement for us. What can God do through us when we're fully submitted to him? And I see this theme in being a faithful servant, the title of my study. So let's look at verse one of chapter 16. It said, he also said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So here we have Jesus, his disciples, his learners, his pupils, who are following after him, and he begins to tell the parable. And we have these characters now in this story that, we're, that Jesus is, is creating here. There's a steward. A steward is a manager of sorts. A steward also is under authority. He has people and bosses above him. And so this manager had an accusation against him, something that he was doing wrong. What's interesting about the word accusation, it's the Greek word diabolo, which is where we get our word diablo from. It means slander, and that's literally the the same root word for devil, is slander. And and I realize that's what the devil likes to do in our life. He likes to slander us, condemn us. But what this man was doing, he was guilty of. He was wasting, he was squandering the goods of his master. You see, a boss, and then we see his employee being accused of mismanagement. You know, this past week, actually, I had a little scare of my own when uh, my, the owner of the company of Alliance Industrial Refrigeration, who's never called me before, uh, he called me on my phone, and I was like, why is the owner calling me right now? And I got scared. Uh, I was like, what, did I, what have I been doing? <laughs> and you start going through all the mental checks, like, have I been doing everything right? And he wanted to know about a particular new install that they did and that they wanted to uh, kind of, I had to go out there to diagnose. So it was something that was broken. I had, had to just tell him what I found. And he said, oh, thank you. Like, I just want, we, I wanted to find out. Uh, thank you for all the work you're doing. And that was it. And that was the end of the phone call. But in my head, I was like, Whew, all right, we're good. We're all right. There's nothing, nothing wrong here. And we realized, that the, look, the boss in a company can have that authority, that power to when he walks in the room and he sees a bunch of people taking their, their coffee break for like longer than they're supposed to, all of a sudden everyone's like, oh, back to work, right? So that's what's happening here. And this manager is now having the accusation that he hasn't been doing good in his job. In verse two, it says, so he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. So basically here, the manager just got his two-week notice. He's like, dude, you're fired. You got two weeks, and I want to know all that you've been doing with my other businesses, the things I left you in charge of. And so now you can imagine what's what's happening here is the stress now that's coming in his life. To make an account, that's to communicate the causes of what has, he has been doing. 
Which leads me to my first point this morning. Point number one. Be ready to give an account. Be ready to answer for your actions is, is what that means. Have you guys ever been in trouble for something and then you knew that the consequence was appro- approaching? Wasn't that the most stressful time in your life? When you were like, oh, for me, I, I remember one time in particular, it was in first or second grade. I got a yellow ticket. Yep, I got a yellow ticket because I, I was being bad. In fact, uh, I'll, I'll put myself on blast and I, I, was, I, was throwing, I threw a stick at a girl, okay? <laughs> it hit her leg. And she didn't even get hurt, but she got mad. So she went and told the, the recess duty officer or whatever. And then I got a yellow ticket. And I remember I had that yellow ticket that I had to get signed by my parents. And I was so scared. I was like, oh, man. Uh, and so I waited till the end of the day. Like, and it, like, I already got home. I was home for a while. And at the end of the night, I remember my, mo- my mom being in the restroom. And I was like, mom, uh, I got I, I need you to sign this, this, this ticket. She's like, well, what is it? I was like, it, it, I got a ticket. I need you to sign it. And I slid it under the, I was so scared. I slid it under the restroom door. Like, like okay. And I remember my parents got mad because they, they, they said like threw a stick at a girl or something. And I was like, oh no. And then so, and I got the belt. I got the swat. I don't know if it was exactly the belt, but I remember getting spanked for that that time. And I was so scared. I was terrified of that coming consequence. It was stressful. And what's interesting in our life, in our day-to-day lives, we do have consequences that sometimes they, they frighten us. But this is the most frightening consequence that we, we need to be concerned about. Death from sin. sin the, the spiritual death is the greatest consequence that approaches and yet there's people who are indifferent towards it. There's people who, who do not fear the greatest consequence. Sometimes we're worried, oh man, about all these things. Now, for the believer, we don't have to fear that. We don't fear that spiritual death because we know that passing from this earth is to be with God. But there are people who have a lot of anxiety when it comes to the afterlife. And, and I've seen this topic of, of the afterlife sometimes give people this existential crisis when they don't know the Lord. I, I've had friends of mine who, who have come to me uh, with, with literal panic attacks because they begin to dwell on what happens after death. And they're just thinking about that and, and they don't have a relationship with Jesus And it causes them to go literally into this existential crisis of what is the meaning of life? Who am I? What what are my thoughts? And you really could go really deep if you allow your mind to go that way. But that's why God calls us to meditate on his word, to dwell on him, his truth, his love, his light. And when I think about why we are created, there's one of my favorite verses in Revelation chapter 4 verse 11. There's this verse, uh, it's a praise verse to the Lord. It says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. 
So we were made for God's pleasure so that God can enjoy that relationship with us and vice versa. So then when we're not living that purpose-filled life, we're not living what our purpose creation is for. Let's continue in verse 3. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I am ashamed to beg. And then, ah, I've resolved what to do. That when I am put out of stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So here the steward, he realizes the loss of, of his job could result in him becoming a beggar. He, he can't dig, he says. He's, he's not physically able to dig. So sometimes that realization of the consequences that are coming, it, it wakes a person up. It's like, man, I, I don't want to be in that situation. And that's, that's what I will pray for in an unbeliever's life, that their eyes are opened to the choice of a life with God, a, life, a relationship with Jesus and the world and all of its turmoil and filth and how it can damage a life. And I want people to see that. So sometimes if you have that person in your life that you're praying for, that God would get a hold of their life, pray that their eyes, their spiritual being would be open to the truth of the options that we have, the choice that we have, Jesus or hell. So this steward, what he does once he realizes the consequence that's coming, he begins planning. And I remember for myself when I found a growing conviction in my life before I became saved. I remember because my spiritual eyes were being opened by God, that I, I began to have those, those times where I would feel that conviction in my heart and I would ignore it. I remember, in fact, right before I got saved, when I was at the like, hardest point in my life, when I didn't want anything to do with Jesus, and I basically told my parents, hey, look, I'm, I'm not a Christian. I'm not going to be a Christian. I respect you guys. I, I, I love you guys. Uh, and I thought I was so like wise and, and kind of... Uh, I would say clever with my approach to my parents at the time. I was 19 years old and said, hey, look, I respect you guys. I love you, but Jesus is not for me. And I know I broke their heart when I had that conversation with them. And then I remember sitting in church and going at that time through some of the worst trials in my life, all happening in a matter of like two weeks, and just sitting there. And I remember the the pastor was teaching and was giving the message and, and at, or at the, the altar call. And as he's giving the altar call, there was even something he said, like, this is for you today, like, to, to come up here. And, and I just felt the Lord was speaking to me. And my mom even was, like, nudging me. And I was just like, no, I'm not going to go up today. And I, and I didn't. I didn't go up that day. And I was rejecting it. And then so the Lord had to really just break me and humble me to that point where my, my altar call was in the middle of a parking lot when I was on drugs, and I was just like, God, I'm done with this life. I don't want to be living this empty lifestyle anymore. I need you in my life. So I see that there is that moments of conviction that sometimes people try to suppress. But we pray that the Holy Spirit would continue to convict people because it draws them closer to the Lord. 
In verse 5, So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? So he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. So this was now his plan. He's like, Okay, I'm about to lose my job. I got to figure out what I'm going to do after I lose this job. So he's like, okay, I'm going to go to all of my boss's employee or customers and I'm going to treat them really nice and I'm going to cut their prices down and give them discounts on what they owe the owner. So he does. He goes to the first guy, hey, how much do you owe the boss? And he's like, well, I owe him such and such amount. And he's like, all right, cut that down. We're going to 50% off, 20% off. And he starts doing that to all these people. And what he's doing is he's setting himself up because he knows, he's like, okay, when I leave this job, I'm going to go to these people. And whether it's working for them or living with them, whatever he's going to do, I'm going to get on their good side so that I can have some sort of provision come back to me. Now, what he's doing here, really, it, it's still wrong. Because he, he has no right to just go, like, hey, everyone, half off today. It's all you can sell. We're selling it all. Let's go take it while. It's hot pancakes, right? It, it's not his call to do that. But in a sense, however, he still is displaying some sort of wisdom in self-preservation. He is actually working hard and using his wisdom to prepare for the future. Now, Perhaps we've encountered people in our life who show extreme talent or skill or gifting in their sin. People who, if they simply applied their efforts to something with eternal value, they could be a great instrument in the hand of God. And at this point in the story is where the disciples were probably thinking like, all right, this is where Jesus is going to say that the master is going to tell the steward, Depart from me, you wicked servant. Go into hell forever. And they were probably expecting that at this point in the story. So they're rubbing their hands together like, yeah, let's get the Pharisees. And then in verse 8, it says, So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. So plot twist, whoa, wait, hold on. Did he just say he's commending the unjust steward? We just lost cabin pressure. What do you mean? That word for command, it means to praise and to approve. That the master is approving of what this unjust steward, how he was behaving. Because he was behaving wisely. Now we know that there is worldly wisdom. We see men and women who search, who will try to teach us steps to become rich and famous, smart and loved and powerful. It's your best marriage in five steps. It's how to become a, a rich guy in, in two steps. It's like, what? Like, everything's just steps nowadays. But there is some wisdom in those things. And he isn't commending the unrighteous actions of the steward, but he's commending the wisdom of it. It is a strong statement that the sons of the world are more shrewd than the sons of light. How, how could he say that? And I have come across people who believe 
that Christians by nature, that us, that we're not as successful in this life because we're taught to be meek and humble versus being ruthless to achieve a goal. And I've met people who, who feel that way about Christians. However, I don't see Jesus here telling his disciples to use unholy actions to reach a goal. But I do see Jesus here telling believers to be wise like this man. To not become complacent. So that's my second point today. Don't become complacent. The definition for complacency, and according to, to uh, Merriam-Webster, complacency is a feeling of being satisfied with how things are and not wanting to try to make them better. A, a feeling of being satisfied with how things are and not trying to make them better. It, it's a condition of the heart. Now, as Christians, we should not settle in our lives for complacency. Because you guys are representatives of Jesus to the world. And you guys claim, we claim to have the Holy Spirit living through our life. And yet, sometimes we fail. We go out there and the world sees us and it's like, man, God's living in that person's life? Because honestly, we're sinners. Saved by grace, but we're still trying. And the goal is to strive and fight for holiness, never to give up. But we should attempt to be the very best in every field that God places us in. See, if God calls us to be a librarian, you better be the best Holy Spirit-filled librarian that ever seen, <laughs> that anyone's ever seen. You know, to uh, put your best effort in, in everything that you do. I, I think of stories like, like Jabin, um, Jabin, Jacob in Laban's house. Do you guys remember in the Old Testament, Jacob? Jacob fell in love with Laban's daughter. And because of this, he desired to marry her. And he, he had not much to, to offer. So he told his uncle Laban, he said, hey, how about this? I will work for you for seven years. And after that amount of time, why don't you, can you give me your first daughter? And he's like, all right, deal. Let's do it. So they, he works. And then his uncle tricks him. And after, when he gives him finally the wedding and, and the wife, I'm pretty sure he got Jacob drunk or something. Because then the next morning, when he wakes up after the, the whole marriage ceremony, and the wife turns over the covers, it's the less beautiful sister who got married to him, Leah. And he's like, whoa. He wakes up that morning like, this is not what I remember I was signing up for. And so then the uncle tells him, okay, look, look, it's in our culture. You got to marry the older daughter first. I'll still give you Rachel, but uh, just uh, work for me for another extra seven years on top of that. And he's like, oh, but because he loved this girl so much, he's like, I'll do it. And then I feel bad for Leah because then she's just like the second wife in the marriage, which by the way is not good. So then Jacob, though, when it, when it goes throughout his life, he's kind of being tricked and schemed 
by his uncle throughout his life. But throughout his life, it says that everything that Jacob would do in Laban's house would be blessed. Or, or Jacob, he, he would tend the, the flock of goats and, and th- those goats were blessed. And, and Laban saw this and he recognized that everything that Jacob put his hand to, God was blessing. Joseph had a similar story. You guys remember uh, Joseph thrown into slavery by his brothers. is then taken to Potiphar's house. And there everything that he's doing is, is prospering and successful. So Potiphar... He likes the guy. He entrusts everything to him. But then we know the story uh, of Potiphar's wife, right? She came in in her, uh, her bikini probably and was like, and then Joseph was like, no, I'm not going to do anything against my master and against the Lord first and foremost. And because he rejects Potiphar's wife's advances, she cries rape and the guy gets thrown in prison. And then even in prison, everything that Joseph is doing in prison begins to be blessed, where they make him kind of like a manager in prison where he has then men underneath him there. And throughout Joseph's life, one of the key themes is that God was with him. And you'll see that that phrase throughout Joseph's life. And there in the prison, God was with Joseph. And there in Potiphar's house, God was with Joseph. And so God was not allowing Joseph to leave his presence. God was with him. And I realized, look, if if that's the God that we follow, that we worship, that we serve, then whatever field that God places us in, remember that. Allow yourself to be that representative of Christ to the lost world. It doesn't mean we need to run away like monks into the mountaintop and not be in the world. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. Let's look at verse 9. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. So now, pointing to the goal to be received is the eternal home. So Jesus right here, what he's saying, that word for mammon, it means riches and treasures specifically earthly things that God has given us. Unrighteous mammon is that very thing. They're earthly things that God has given us, whether it's your finances, a position. God gives us these things to manage here on earth. Now, if we invest these things and use them for his kingdom, there's eternal reward. But if we just use them on ourselves and we invest only in ourselves, then your reward here on earth, that's it. You don't get the reward in heaven for it. In verse 10, he says, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Which leads me to my third point this morning. Be faithful in the little things. Be faithful in the little things. That word for faithful, it it means trustworthy. And oftentimes people, we realize, they don't suddenly gain success overnight. I mean, it's a a rarity that someone does that. Maybe now on Instagram or TikTok, they just become an overnight success. Everything goes viral, right? But usually it, it takes growth and learning in order to succeed. 
We often see that if someone can't get past the first steps of learning discipline and responsibility in their life, it causes failure. And sometimes we're praying for God to give us that, that big thing in life. God, just give me that big thing that I want in life, that one thing. Yet we've been unjust and unfaithful in the small things that he's given us. And God allows us to go through these tests. I've seen it in my life. And sometimes he doesn't let us move forward until we pass those tests. And, and you know, we have to keep retaking them and then we keep failing I thank God that he keeps giving us the tests sometimes. But pray that you would pass those tests. We're all in the school. And everyone has their different school. God knew exactly what type of schooling you needed and you needed and you needed. And we're all different from one another. So sometimes we look at another person and we're like, man, that guy seems like his class is way funner than mine. But let's be faithful in the class that God's put you in. In verse 11, Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? So look, recognize all of the good things in our life are a gift from God. Earthly finances, marriages, relationships, the, those things are a gift from God. And if God sees us mishandling these things, his earthly gifts, do you think he might be holding back those spiritual blessings then? In, in this verses 11 and 12 too, I, I had a, my own personal, and I kind of want to share this with you guys, my own personal God speaking to me and, and directing my life. Because when I get, came to this point, I was like, wow, okay, because I've been praying for God to help me and my balancing of ministry life and church life, I'm sorry, that's the same thing, ministry life and work life and, and, and in my marriage and, and finding balance in, in a new season in my life. And I feel lately in, in both of those major areas in my ministry and in work, uh, there, I haven't been able to give 100% focus. And, and, and I feel in certain ways that I've been unfaithful to do my best, whether it's at work or in my marriage, or at church, because I'm divided. I've been asking God, help me with these things. And more recently, I've even been praying and thinking, okay, one way that I, I can see, and I, I think God gave me this idea literally on Friday night, um, to, to go to my boss and, and ask him to help me with my schedule. To be like, hey, I, I, I can still give you 40 hours, but how about on the, the days when I, when I teach the, the Bible, I'll work four hours each, each of those days and I'll work 10 hours on the other days. Things like that. And my boss is pretty lenient when it comes to this thing, so I'll keep me in prayer. I hope he's not watching right now. <laughs> but I, I, I am going to go talk to him tomorrow. I'm like, you know what? I've seen them work things out with other technicians before. But this was for me one thing where I saw, wow, okay, let's be faithful with what God's given me. Because if, I'm, if my heart's divided at work, and I'm concerned all, all just about church that day, then I'm not really fully giving my best at work. And if I'm at church and I'm thinking about work, then I'm not fully giving my best there either. So pray for me tomorrow. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. I'll let you guys know. And if not, maybe the Lord's just showing me, hey, like this is the season we're in right now. This is how where you need to learn balance and all things. In verse 13, 
No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. See, we're to recognize God first and God alone as God. There's no equal to him. When you put God first, he will put your heart and your life in a right place towards the earthly riches and earthly masters. Which leads me to my last point this morning. Be Christ's servant. We always work for God. We don't work for man. Though we do have authorities and men above us, we have to recognize, realize that it's not them who we're working for. Ultimately, we need to work for God. And when you work for God, it does change the way you work. Because if you're working for man, you're like, man, why do I got to work for this guy? Why, why, do I, why am I trying so, far, so hard for him or her? They're, they treat me mean. They're doing this. They're doing that. They're not even saved. Wh- whatever it could be. But when you realize, look, you work for God as a representative, all of a sudden you're like, you know what? I'm working for God. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, Paul exhorts the Ephesian church about being bondservants. He says, bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men. You see, in their culture, in the Jewish culture, if there was a servant who loved his master, the master treated him well. Every seven years that a servant was in occupation, at the end of seven years, by law, by ceremonial law, they had to be released from their servanthood. They couldn't continue to work for the guy. So there was an exception though. If that servant loved his master because the master treated him well, blessed him, allowed him to have a family. If that servant then went to the master and said, I want to continue to be your servant for a lifetime. Then they would take them to the judges. They would put an earring in his ear. It was an awl, which signified lifetime service. And then throughout the, the New Testament, James, Peter, Jude, John, they all refer to themselves as this type of servant, a bond servant, a doulos. That's the Greek term. Someone who has committed themselves to a lifetime service. So this morning, I'm going to go to Oscar and I'm say, Oscar, I want to serve you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, I live with my, my father-in-law, so no, lifetime service. No, I'm <laughs> But these men, they knew the context of doulois. They desired to be servants of Christ. And with this, we see submission. Look, I get it. There's authorities that it's hard to be submissive to in our life, right? We got Newsom, we got Biden. Sometimes it's hard to be submissive to that, right? And you never are submissive when it goes against the Lord, ever. When it goes against the Lord, you stand true, like Ratchak, Meshach, and Abednego. In the fire, God was with them. But we do still have other people, employers, 
teachers, ministers, pastors. In marriage, we submit to the Lord. And then as men, as the, the husbands, we love our wife the way Christ loved the church and died, gave himself for the church. And it's hard for us because we have, it takes death to self in a marriage, doesn't it? It takes death to self in being an employee or be, even being a family member. But when we are Christ's servant, he, he lines these things up in our life. So I, I ask us this morning, what are we working for in life? Who are we serving? And I want to leave you guys with this last verse. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 through 33, Jesus exhorted his disciples. He said, therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. So we don't need to worry. God's going to add exactly what we need because Jesus is everything we need. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity, Lord, to, to teach, to, to learn, to grow. An opportunity to change my lifestyle, Lord God, and to repent. Sometimes we act one way, Lord, and, and then you tell us to turn around. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to be submissive unto you. Father, I pray for your, your servants here. I pray, Lord, if there's decisions that need to be made, jobs and, and finances and family, Lord God, all those things, Lord. And maybe there's stress and anxiety involved, Lord, in them. I ask that by your Holy Spirit that you would help us, Lord God, to be submissive to you first and foremost. That when we get our relationship right with you and that your Holy Spirit will work out those other relationships in our life. That by your Holy Spirit's power, Father, you would provide for our our physical needs, financial needs, Lord Lord God, our mental, emotional needs. Lord God, we thank you for us meeting our spiritual needs. Lord God, clothe us in the armor from head to toe, Lord. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for your word. May it go before us in our life. And we love you. We praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.